as we'll see tonight and we've seen over the past numbers of weeks, the book of Leviticus, if it does anything, it tells us that God is in every single area of life. Leviticus has the verses that I don't even want to read out loud from the pulpit because they're just very personal. They're very um, part of our lives. And, and yet the lesson is very clear that God will not have our lives separated into the secular and the sacred. Everything is sacred to him. And so we'll look at these three chapters tonight. Now at the end of our time, I'm going to give you a top secret and yet obvious tip to a vibrant Christian life. And I would have you keep that filed away. We'll get to our subject now. But at the very end, a secret yet obvious tip to a vibrant Christian life. Now, if I were to ask you the question, what is the connection between my worship of God and my life? How are those two connected? What answer might we hear? Well, the answer we would generally hear from typical American evangelicalism would go something like this. This is how worship and life connects. Your Sunday morning God should be your Monday through Saturday God. You should feel his presence every day. You should commune with him every day. Jesus should just be around you all the time. Jesus should be in everything you do. Now that sounds good. It feels good. But generally speaking, how do we know we're doing that? Well, it's defined as a feeling, as an emotion, as, a, as, as generating the sensation of the presence of God. So what does it actually mean that Jesus should be in everything you do? I've heard that said many, many times. What does that mean? Well, the typical American evangelical answer actually is so vague that it doesn't mean anything. But Scripture does give an answer to the question, what is the connection between my worship of God and my life? Here's the answer. A worshipful life is a holy life. It's a holy life, one in which your worship has marked out, has defined your behavior in honoring God's created order in all things. So what does it mean Jesus is in everything you do? It means you're obeying him. It means you're honoring his requests, his commands, his created order. And that is exactly the answer we receive in our text tonight in Leviticus 20 through 22. In these chapters, we're considering holiness and the worshipful life and how those two go together. Now, this is the overriding theme of these three chapters for the Israelite, if you were truly a follower of Yahweh, then you would do just that. You would follow him. It means you obey him. When in Israel's history, the people held fast to their faith in the Lord, this preserved the divine order in all aspects of life. And, and if you want to know what a law-abiding family looked like, we mentioned this this morning, but I would encourage you to read the book of Ruth. And you see the family of Boaz and how they're blessed by the Lord because they're law keepers. And they are truly faithful in that way. But then in Israel's history, when they stray from their faithfulness to Yahweh, it, it didn't just affect their religious life. It permeated every area of their lives. It polluted them. It polluted their families. It polluted the government. It polluted their society. See also the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a difficult read. It is rated R because it's immoral and it's violent and it's disgusting the type of society into which Israel quickly descended. You see, hollow worship leads to an unholy life. You cannot separate them. There's a cause-effect relationship between your worship practices and your life. 
Now, this is a a long section, so I want to go ahead and dive into the text. We're going to divide our thoughts about worship and life into three basic parts tonight. But I'm going to jump ahead and go ahead and use New Testament terminology so that we can immediately begin to apply this to our lives. I'm not intermingling Israel and the church at all, but rather just getting our minds thinking toward the church since we are under the New Covenant. But here's the three parts, and we'll use New Testament terminology. The first part we'll look at is the worshipful life of the sheep. The second part is the worshipful life of the shepherds. And then the third part, the pleasing worship of the church. So we'll look at the worshipful life of the sheep, the worshipful life life of the shepherds, and the pleasing worship of the church. So the first part we might divide this into tonight, the worshipful life of the the sheep. And we would find this in chapter 20. The Lord is going to first warn Israel about false religious practices, the most heinous of which involved child sacrifice. Chapter 20, verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Verses 3 and 4 basically says, if the people won't deal with the abomination, God will. And in fact, if the people don't deal with that one man who does this, verse 4, God will cut him off from Israel, not just him, but his entire clan, the group of families that belong to him. So the, the consequences will be severe if the people don't deal with this. Now, we've already noted that in, in previous messages that in Leviticus, When God says, I'm going to cut somebody off from his people, generally that means being executed by God directly. We don't know how that happens, whether it's by disease or just being struck dead, but generally being cut off from people, it it may mean being banished, but in more cases it's going to mean God actually personally executing the evildoer. Now, aside from the obvious horrific nature of child sacrifice, why would someone sacrifice even his own child? Why would they do this? Well, verses 6 and 7 give us a clue. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Mediums and necromancers were those who claimed to be able to communicate with your dead relatives, to speak to the dead on your behalf. And it was a form of ancestor worship because you're looking to your forefathers for help and for miraculous intervention and you might say well that's that's something we would never do today actually we do that all the time today in our pagan culture our society practices necromancy all the time when people say uh, grandpa is looking down on us and watching out for us that's ancestor worship that venerates someone to the level of a god and this is exactly what the mediums and necromancers, if they were putting their, putting their shingle out saying, you communicate with your great uncle, and you would go to them to look for help. But, so what's the connection between the child sacrifice and the necromancers and mediums? Well, it's thought that the child sacrifice was not only to the god Molech, but it was perhaps to send the spirit of a related child to an ancestor in exchange for blessing or protection of some sort. It it was a twisted, disgusting sort of form of, I'll send you your great-granddaughter if you will bless the crops of my field. And so there's the connection. And of course, this is a blatant disregard for the one true living God 
Yahweh. And he says, if you sacrifice your children, if you turn to mediums or necromancers, I will cut you off from among your people. Is God true to his word? King Ahaz in Isaiah's day is famous for being given the prophecy of the virgin birth of Messiah. He sacrificed his son to Molech. And Ahaz died at the age of 36. We don't know how, but he was clearly cut off early in life. King Saul, in an act of desperation, consulted a necromancer, a witch. 1 Samuel 28 tells us this, to speak to the spirit of the dead prophet Samuel. Now, generally speaking, these witches, these mediums, they they didn't know what they were dabbling in. And so the witch of Endor was just as surprised as Saul was when in God's providence and in an exception to the rule, Samuel actually appeared. But why did God send the spirit of Samuel? Very simply to give Saul his death sentence from God. And Saul was killed in battle along with his sons in the subsequent skirmish and war with the Philistines. So, what are the false religious practices we might, under the New Covenant, need to avoid? Because we're obviously not doing these things in particular. What are the false gods we might be enticed to worship? False worship practices which ultimately will find their way into our lives and living in disobedience to the Lord. Well, in our day, Satan's scheme has been ingenious. Absolute genius. Because rather than the very clear distinction of Yahweh versus Molech, the real black and white distinction. Now we have blurred distinctions with a bunch of different people who all name the name of Jesus, who all say that they represent God as their banner. So let me just give you some examples of some subtle false gods that we might be enticed to worship and we should be careful of. These are false gods we've spoken of before, but, but we need to be aware and be wary of them. Here's one example, the God of theology. The God of theology Theology is the study of God, and we, we enjoy theology, we need theology, but it is not an end in of itself. That theology isn't the goal, theology is the means to the goal, and the goal is to do what? It is to praise God, it is to give God glory. If I put it this way, our theology should lead us to doxology. Theology is not a hobby to pursue for its own sake. Theology is meant to bring you to your knees in adoration and obedience, and yet it has become very popular to love theology while inadvertently being distanced from the God that theology tells us of. To be more excited about theological writings than God's writings in Scripture. I've had pastors tell me that they, they confess they love reading a theology more than they love reading their Bible. That's upside down. There's something wrong with that. When someone tells me I love theology, lately my response has been, then that must make you so loyal and obedient and worshipful toward the Lord. In other words, your sound orthodoxy should lead you straight to sound orthopraxy. That if you're going to love theology, it will make you love God and it will make you obey God. But theology itself can become a God. How about this one? The God of worldliness. Speaking of sacrificing our children, parents and grandparents, here's a simple question for you. What are you doing with your children because the world thinks you should or because it seems normal? Because everyone else is doing it. Can you answer that question concerning how you raise your children? What am I doing that makes my family set apart? What about my family makes us at odds with the world system of priorities? 
the world system of morality, the world system of behavior? What am I doing that's different? Someone might say, well, I don't want my children sheltered. I've heard that all the time. Can I tell you what the Bible says about that? The very first verse of the book of Psalms suggests otherwise. Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's very simple, being able to answer this question, why am I doing this? Sylvia and I were discussing just the other night that all throughout the course of raising our kids, from the time they were little, we made decisions that were countercultural. We made decisions that we didn't know anybody else was doing. But there were things that we felt like was going to help our kids move toward holiness and living the life that we thought would be pleasing to the Lord. And all along the way, it, we felt like we've been like pushing back against waves of disapproval. It's been that way the whole time. After a few years, you kind of get used to it. But time after time after time, the decisions that we made, we felt like were what God would have us to do, were vindicated. Because, uh, for example, we made a decision that our kids did not have to play 19 sports. There's nothing wrong with that inherently, but we made that decision that we wanted to have time with our family. We wanted our kids' first priority to be at home. And yes, we have an activity here and there, but we restricted it. And and all of our friends, when we were first uh, having our kids, um, they were all well you're not a good dad if he's not playing 19 sports. I mean, isn't the goal of every parent to get them a sports scholarship? That that's what parenting is about? No, it's not. And so we don't sacrifice our children to the God of worldliness. Don't sacrifice ourselves to the God of worldliness. How about this one? The God of rebellion. The God of rebellion. Culturally speaking, Americans have trouble with authority. And that's kind of partly what makes us Americans, right? We, we, we kind of are, are pushbackers, if that's a word. And, and this shows up in the church. As Paul commanded Titus, the, the rightly ordained elders of a local church have a responsibility. This is what Paul told Titus in Titus 2.15. Speaking of preaching the word, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Ooh, that's unpopular today. It, try preaching that in most evangelical churches. They would say, well, the pastor's gotten uppity. No, the pastor's just reading the Bible and just saying this is what's true. But we are to beware of our own hearts. Many difficulties arise in the church when the member begins to resent her own shepherds instead of heeding the call of 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13 to respect those who labor among you. One of our own church members told me something once that I will never forget. Quote, Sheep, sheep are happiest when they love their shepherds. I'll never forget that. I was standing right there when he told me that. And he said it with a big smile. I'm a happy sheep. And I said, why? He said, because sheep are happiest when they love their shepherds. But the God of rebellion is prevalent. How about this one? The God of consumerism. The God of consumerism concerning the church, of thinking of the church as your servant rather than you being the servant to the church. I mentioned that this morning. This can strike both the shepherds and the sheep, this affliction. Shepherds, paid pastors in particular, can think about their careers, can think about the perks that are offered to them, looking always for a better situation, looking for this church to be a stepping stone to a a bigger, more glamorous church or whatever, whatever that is. In many cases, that can be idolatry of self. And how about the sheep? You know, there's something that's always a dead giveaway to me. 
where someone's heart is is when they speak of their church as in separate terms from themselves. Instead of saying our church, they say the church or your church. Like, aren't you a member here? Why are you saying this is your church? This is our church. Always on probation. This church is always under scrutiny. I can imagine the hysterical laughter that might have happened if a church member came to the elders of the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church, and said, I don't feel the programs here are adequate for my family. The, the youth group needs to have more fun, and I need a Bible study that's less than three minutes from my house for convenience, and I need music that more fits my, my taste. I imagine the elders saying, I'll tell you what, when we're all in prison, Revelation 3, verse 10, let's talk about it then. How about that? They, they would have laughed him out. So the false religious practices available to us today, they're more subtle, but they're equally dangerous. They're equally dangerous. Now, still under this broad heading of the worshipful life of the sheep, not only does God warn against false religious practices, he warns against the violations of God's family order. God's family order. As you read Leviticus and and the entire Pentateuch, you see that God has clearly established family as the unit of society and what that family order looks like. Now, how serious is he about this? Verses 9 through 16 of chapter 20, the punishment for serious offenses concerning the family was death. Verse 9, anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother, his blood is upon him. This cursing of your parents, it's the idea of reviling. And this particular word is a word that means to make light of someone. And that's not in a joking manner. What that means is to discredit them, to to say you are less than human. You have a nation with that level of family breakdown. It, It can't endure. It can't endure at all. Verse 10 tells us that adultery is punishable by death. This is a major disruption of God's family order. And that, of course, transcends all covenants and translates also into the new covenant. Verses 11 and 12 speak to incest. This also is dealt with in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul found someone guilty of an incestuous relationship and turned him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, 1 Corinthians 5. By the way, that is a one-step church discipline situation for the purity of the body. Verse 13 of chapter 20, homosexual acts are prohibited. It's a violation of the divine order. And yes, it is that simple. It is that simple. People are continually trying to find other forms of authority to appeal to. Well, it's normal now, or I was born this way. All you're doing is appealing to human authority instead of to divine authority. Divine authority says, that's not what I created. Your fleshly lusts and desires do not dictate what is right and wrong. That is idolatry of self. And just to kind of delve into that issue for a moment, because there are so many now, it, it used to be uh, the, the Christians kind of uh, standing up against homosexuality. Now it's Christians standing up for homosexuality. And so we have to make a distinction here. Modern theologians are trying desperately to rewrite the meaning of this verse and many other similar verses in the Bible. But their Bible study methods become ridiculous. They become illogical. They become clearly biased toward a politically correct view. In other words, what they do is they start with the conclusion they want to have and then they work backwards to develop a Bible study method that will get them back to their conclusion. 
The problem is if you use that same Bible study method with anything else, then the Bible says whatever you want it to. Here's the logic that they often present. And this is where Leviticus gets very personal. They would say the book of Leviticus condemned homosexuality, but it also calls the time of a woman's period unclean. Therefore, Leviticus merely reflects ancient taboos, ancient fears, and none of those apply anymore. Yes, regulations concerning Worship and ritual purity, they have been done away with by the new covenant. We understand that, which would include the ritual purity concerning, uh, for example, such as a a woman's time. But let's be fair to both genders. The fact that a priest with injured genitalia could not minister before the Lord is also, that's, that's done away with. We see that in chapter 21. And so those are worship and purity ritual ideas that were for a specific purpose in the old covenant and they don't carry forward but god's created order is universal and carries on through all covenants god condemned homosexuality prior to the covenant with israel see also the smoldering remains of sodom and gomorrah God condemned homosexuality in the covenant with Israel and God condemns homosexuality in the new covenant in the strongest terms. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 5. Why is this? Because God's created order is one man and one woman in perpetual union joined emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Anything outside of that is outside of his created order. Then you get to verses 14 through 16. You have more incest laws, a a prohibition against bestiality, which we've seen earlier in Leviticus. Why are those things mentioned? They were common practices in Canaanite religions. And now beginning in verse 17, Israel gets a list of maybe slightly lesser offenses. Verse 17, don't marry your sister. Verse 18, prohibited relations with a woman in her monthly time. And why is this included As we said a couple of weeks ago, in the economy of God's preservation of the sanctity and importance of blood, God said, don't do this. And if a a man and a woman knew intentionally that they were violating God's standard, then that was a heart issue. If they decided that that law didn't mean as much as others, there was a heart problem there. But this is a prohibition which is not indicated in the new covenant And then verses 19 through 21 speaks of being intimate with various relatives and that that is prohibited. These are all heart issues. They're blatant and unrepentant violations of God's family order and it indicated a lack of genuine faith. Now, how do we know this? This is is stunning. The, the, The sequence of how Scripture is so consistent with itself. If we were to make a list of prohibitions in Leviticus 20, it would go something like this. No prohibition, the prohibition against idolatry, sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, and reviling, verbally abusing your parents or authority. Those are all things that are prohibited. Why can I say that that meant that people who engaged in those things in an unrepentant manner were not saved? Because we get exactly the same list in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Idolatry, sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, revilers. Of these... The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So God's family order, God's requirement for pure worship is universal across the board. Then chapter 20 closes with a general exhortation to holiness. Verse 22, 
You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. And then in verse 26, you shall be holy to me. For I am the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And so under God's covenant, God will bless them if they do as God commands, but they will forfeit their land if they do not. Second Kings 17, the northern kingdom is defeated and forfeited. Second Kings 25 recalls the fall and the captivity of Judah, the southern kingdom, Verse 21 says, so Judah was taken into exile out of its land. So God's promise came true. Now to make certain we know the main theme of this section, it ends where it all began. It ends with false religious practices. Verse 27, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. This is what's called an inclusio. This is a return to the main theme at the beginning. Their bookends would be a one way to think of it. And that tells you what the main point that God is trying to get across in this section is. What is the main point? It is that God's people must avoid false religious systems which lead them to immoral practices. They must instead follow God's created order. In other words, your worship determines your life. It determines what you do. The bad worship will lead to a sinful life. And there's a direct correlation between how you worship and how you live. Now, the tradition that I grew up in, I was around quite a bit, especially on my mom's side of the family, the uh, Church of God Holiness. Church of God Holiness, they had two things going for them. That number one, they loved the Lord. Number two, they were the most boring people on planet Earth because they thought everything on planet Earth was a sin. And so, in other words, the way to avoid sin was to be like a Pharisee and to do nothing that might be slightly enjoyable or fun at all, and then you know you're safe. And I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but in fact, it was a form of what is called monasticism, of I'm going to separate myself from the world so drastically, that way I know I won't be in sin, But holiness and a worshipful life as a sheep in Christ's church is not a life of withdrawing from society. That's the failed experiment of monasticism. Holiness is how you interact with your surroundings in a God-pleasing manner, right? It's not getting out of the world. It's, It's what you're doing while you're in the world. How do you interact with your spouse, with your children, with your fellow believers, with your employer, with your employees, with your neighbors, with your leaders, with your followers? How do you interact with them or to make it more simple in Jesus words how are you light in the world and so the main point of chapter 20 here is that you avoid false worship because the avoidance of false worship will help you lead a holy life so you have the worshipful life of the sheep and then Moses here beginning in chapter 21 addresses the worshipful life of the shepherds God deals with some of the very normal aspects of life and demonstrates how the priests, the shepherds of Israel, were to live a worshipful life, particularly revealed in the high standards for God's shepherds. Shepherds, first of all, in this section, they were to set an example 
in regards to how the people were to think about death. How were they to think about death? They were to set an example of hope in the midst of their grief. Chapter 21, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. In other words, the priest was, except in the cases of very close relatives, to avoid physical contact and even close proximity to the dead. Verse 4, he shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. What is that talking about? It means he's not to even come close to the dead who are related to him by marriage. Only blood relatives or his wife. And verse 5, they were not to grieve in ways that were pagan. They weren't to grieve in ways that showed lack of trust in the Lord. And for the high priest, his obligation to God came first all the time. Verses 10 through 12, he was never to be in close proximity to the dead. Never. Now you notice that once again, the text returns again to the theme of death. In giving these restrictions to the shepherds, What he's doing here, God is setting apart his people in how they think about human death, particularly the death of the faithful. And he's doing this in two ways. The first way he's doing this is he's clearly setting apart his priesthood as totally different. Totally different. Satan has mocked and he's imitated the idea of a priesthood since really the beginning of time. And in pagan religions, not only were priests not separated from death, they were obsessed with death. In fact, they were the ones who were closest to death. And for example, in ancient Egypt, it was the cultic priests who dealt with the dead. They embalmed the bodies. They were to say magic spells and incantations. They were responsible for the dead. They were the, they were the ones who were, who were to touch the dead and to be around the dead, to give the family assurances that the dead would be fine. But in contrast to this, God's priesthood, they're given no supposed powers to affect the future state of the dead. In fact, they're barely allowed to be around the dead. And the second way God set his people apart in how they think about death was this minimalist approach to death. It emphasized the covenant hope of God's people that he's the one who creates life, who preserves life, and who restores life. Can I put it this way? the way God is telling them to deal with death is different in that God is saying it's not as big a deal as you think it is because I am faithful to you. This is the hope that we have more fully developed in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? This is the Old Testament version of that. It's not that the priests or the people weren't to grieve the loss of a loved one, but they were not to grieve like the world who has no hope. This week at the infamous Bethel Church of Reading, there was a, it has been a media frenzy over their attempts to resurrect a precious little two-year-old girl who died tragically. Yes, it's fine to pray for healing. And yes, it's fine to pray for resurrection. But people ask Jesus to raise the dead and he did but the difference is that they were demanding this 
here at Bethel, they believe it's intertwined with true faith that we should be able to do anything Jesus did. By the way, Bethel Church has a dead-raising team that they go around to the dead. So far, they're O for whatever they're doing. They're completely defeated. They don't have a concept of trusting the sovereignty of God. They certainly don't have a concept of entrusting the soul of this precious one unto the Lord. Their Jesus is a very different Jesus who is supposed to jump when we command him to jump. Their Jesus is a Jesus who would say that life on this earth is better than life in heaven. Can I ask you a favor? If I drop dead, don't try to resurrect me. I don't want to come back. But for the Christian, the dead are completely entrusted to the Lord and entrusted to his good purposes. We entrust our grief and our heartache to him as well. And so the priests were to set an example of a a completely different way of thinking about the death of the faithful. That the faithful were still in the covenant plan of God. God would still be faithful to them. They were to be as Job was in Job 19, 25, and 26. That I know that my Redeemer lives and that in my flesh I will see him on the earth. That is Job uh, saying that I will be resurrected and I will see my Savior face to face. That's the hope of the true believer. And so the priests were to set an example in regard to death. The priests were also to set an example in regard to marriage. Chapter 21, verse 7, They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. This is not a condemnation of any person that God is somehow saying that a prostitute or a woman who's been defiled is unforgivable. That's not the point of this. This is for the ordinary priest, by the way. Verses 13 through 15 gives the same standard for the high priest. But basically, what God is forbidding is that the priest is not to marry any woman who has been with a man previously in any context at all. He was to exemplify God's very best plan for marriage a pure relationship with the purpose of producing godly children. In fact, a thousand years later, after this text was written, even after some Israelites had now returned from exile, many began turning to the ways of the world again. They were not honoring their marriages. And God gives one of the greatest statements on marriage in all of the Bible The Lord is refusing to accept the worship of the men of Israel. Malachi 2, beginning in verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Why does he not what? Why does he not accept our worship? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Listen to this. Malachi 2.15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. There are at least two earth-shaking details to this. Just how spiritual is a marriage? They are said to have been given a portion of the spirit of God in their union. What does that mean? I have no idea. But there is a, there is a supernatural quality. There is a spiritual quality to a marriage. And if you've been married for any length of time, you know this. You know this. You can see a little gesture from your spouse and you, you could give paragraphs about what that means because you're connected vitally. 
The second earth-shaking detail, what is God seeking in marriages? Godly offspring. That's a major part of the purpose of marriage. And this goes all the way back to the central directive of all mankind in Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth. And so the priest was to set an example. He was to exemplify a marriage that is, that is godly and, and pure in every way that he can. There's a couple of side notes that we get to. How are people to regard their shepherds? 21 verse 8, you shall sanctify him for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you for I, the Lord who sanctifies you, am holy. Put that in our context today. You respect your leaders because God's the one who put them there. Another side note, how are the children of the shepherds to regard their fathers? God gives an extreme example, chapter 21, verse 9, the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire, meaning she shall be executed and her body burned so that it won't, it, uh, it won't pollute the rest of the camp spiritually. The main point here is to respect and honor her father because of his calling. Now, obviously, There's a difference here. I point out that the priesthood in Israel was hereditary. It was restricted to Levites only. So offspring is an important issue. You you can't have polluted offspring. The New Testament, however, has no hereditary priesthood. And so there's no rules about whom to marry, except the obvious wisdom of marrying only a believer in Christ. But the leader in the church is to have a wife who is worthy of respect. 1 Timothy 3.11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. One 19th century theologian named A.A. Bonner, he wrote this. Very awful is your responsibility if you diminish your zeal, love, spirituality by marrying one who has more of earth and the present world in her person and spirit than of heavenly and a coming eternity. Let me translate that into 21st century. Young pastors, don't marry worldly women. They'll ruin your ministry. I've seen it happen. And it's sad. A man who spent three, four, sometimes six and seven years in formal training, and yet one woman who is selfish and cannot get out of her own selfishness takes him out of the game completely. Why is the sanctity of marriage so important? Well, because the, the, the marriage is what compares the covenant relationship that we have with the Lord. Marriage is a picture of God's covenant relationship with us, right? And so shepherds are to pursue godliness in that regard. And so God's given admonitions that the priests are to be examples in the context of death and marriage. And now God gives a really long list of disqualifiers for ministry In chapter 21, verses 16 through 23, I won't read the list, but it feels harsh. It feels harsh. All kinds of things. I mean, basically, anything worse than acne, and you are disqualified. Any sort of malady, any sort of deformity, any sort of physical challenge disqualifies a man from serving. He would be entering the holy place of the tabernacle And once per year, the high priest enters the most holy place on behalf of God's people. And so God insisted that those representing his people to him be without physical blemish. And this was not in any way a a harshness at all. It simply is a picture of the holiness that God demands, particularly of his leaders, of his shepherds. 
Now, obviously, the temple and the priesthood no longer exist, so those qualifications no longer exist, but we do have the spiritual qualifications demanded by God for the shepherds of his church. First Timothy 3, they're to be above reproach, meaning they have good reputation. They're to be the husband of one wife. They're devoted to marriage. They're to be sober-minded and self-controlled, meaning that his decision-making is measured, it's prudent, it's not emotional, it's not wild. They're to be respectable. It's a word that means modest. They're not supposed to be edgy. They're not supposed to be hipsters. They're not supposed to be the coolest thing on earth. They're just respectable. They're to be hospitable. It's a word that means accepting of strangers, desiring to minister the gospel to the lost. It is inappropriate to be a shepherd and not love the lost. He is to be able to teach. He's skilled and knowledgeable in the word of God. He is not to be a drunkard, not controlled by substances which alters his ability to think or to lead. He's not to be violent, but gentle. He's to be not quarrelsome. You're not the guy constantly looking for a fight. He's not to be a lover of money. He doesn't have an insatiable desire for more and more and more. He's to manage his own household well. His home isn't ruled by chaos. His children are to be submissive. He takes time to discipline his children. Listen, if I were to compare the qualifications of Leviticus 21 to the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, Leviticus 21 is easier. It's very black and white. If I walk with a limp, I'm out. That's it. But here in 1 Timothy 3, these are internal character qualities that your shepherds are called to and that we fight for and that we struggle for. Well, finally, in this section on the shepherds, chapter 22, verses 1 through 9, indicates that the priests are not to defile, not to profane the sacrifices offered to the Lord in worship. You can read the details for yourself in verses 1 through 9. Verses 10 through 16, in the same way, the lay person, the normal person, was not to profane the holy things of the Lord, the sacrifices brought to him, which were not specified for consumption. And the basic point of this whole section is that Purity is required for worship. In other words, uh, one example would be if you had some sort of illness, you were not to be part of the, the sacrificial process until that was taken care of. Purity is required for worship. No one was to eat of the holy sacrifices while they still remained unclean by their regular normal contact with the world. Now, obviously, the priests were human beings living in the world like everyone else. They had times of ceremonial uncleanness like everyone else. And so they were to spiritually prepare themselves for their own worship duties. And that that applies to all worshipers. Failing to examine our hearts and to prepare for worship with confession and humility, it, it makes our worship less than acceptable to the Lord. Dr. Alan Ross makes a very seasoned and experienced observation about worship. He says this, How did people profane the name of the Lord? By disobedience. Likewise today, when people fail to prepare their hearts for worship by examining themselves, then they are treating the Lord as unimportant and his table, speaking of the Lord's Supper, as if it were an ordinary meal. People also profane the Lord when they give to God less than their best or when they use the gifts God has given them purely for secular purposes. So this whole section, chapter 21, all the way through chapter 22, verse 16, what's the common denominator? It is the set-apart nature of the shepherds, of the priests. 
Chapter 21, verse 8, the, the shepherd is holy to the people. 21, verse 15, the Lord has set them apart. Chapter 21, verse 23, the shepherd is not to profane the worship of God. The priests, the shepherds of Israel are not and cannot be without sin. And yet his life was to be characterized by being set apart. You know, the dedication of those called to minister to the Lord at, at various levels, deacons, elders, leaders in the church, this is not an occupation. This is a life. I, I always cringe when somebody asks me, how did you choose the career of being a pastor? It's not a career. And it wasn't a choice. It's neither of those things. For most, that life is a calling which is financially supported by themselves, lay elders, deacons, and so forth. For a few, that life is a calling which is financially supported by the church. First Timothy 5 outlines this and the the pitfalls are many. The dangers are many, both for the paid shepherds and the volunteer leaders. Here's some of the pitfalls. Our own sin, it's a reality. You know, we do a confession time on Sunday morning to start our Lord's day that we confess the cleanliness. Don't think that I'm up here waiting for you to confess. I'm confessing. I want to be clean. The danger of viewing our ministry as a career instead of a calling, that does happen to men, and then they become very self-focused. The pitfall of a wife who becomes unhappy or, or dissatisfied. If I could just say, by the way, your pastor's wife is absolutely devoted to the ministry of her husband, no matter what. And so you can take comfort in that. Another pitfall, the belief in our own legend as if God is just thrilled that we're on his team. I was counseling with a man, a pastor by phone a number of years ago. And he was being mistreated by a few people in his own church. And he used the phrase, he, he, he said, I am God's spokesman to such and such a county that he was in. And I, I said, how many people are in your church? And he said, 40. How many people are in your county? Like 2 million. Like you're barely God's spokesman to your block, much less to the county. But that is believing his own legend. Boy, if I had time, I'd love to fly through First and Second Timothy and Titus because it's filled with, watch out for this, beware of that, for shepherds and for leaders in the church. I'll just give you a short list from First Timothy. Warning people in the church not to teach false doctrine. Don't forget to pray, honor and maintain God's ordained role for husbands and wives. Don't put unqualified men in leadership. Know that some will walk away from the church. Don't get sidetracked with every little argument and issue. Command obedience to the scriptures. Practice and get better at preaching the word. Watch out for what you teach. Watch out for your own life. Don't waste church money on widows who have family. Don't put difficult, unqualified women in positions of responsibility. Make sure teaching pastors get paid well. Watch out for people who love to cause controversy and drama. Tell the wealthy to stop being so stingy and to give with ultra generosity. Never deviate from sound doctrine at all costs. That's just 1 Timothy. All the warnings, all the admonitions. And so how the sheep worships matters and certainly the worshipful life of his shepherds matter as well. Well, the final part of this section in Leviticus, we'll just call the pleasing worship of the church. The pleasing worship of the church, and we won't spend a lot of time on this. The text is very straightforward. Chapter 22, beginning in verse 17 through verse 25, has one theme, the types of sacrifices acceptable to God. Verse 20 
says, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish for it will not be acceptable for you. And the rest of this section gives a laundry list of all the animal sacrifices not acceptable, blind, lame, injured, and so forth. By the way, this is very important for us as New Covenant believers because this fulfills what theologians call the typology, the correlation between these sacrifices and the perfect spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.19 that we are redeemed, quote, with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And that's important because the forgiveness from sin that we enjoy from God, we revel in it, we enjoy it, because God would only accept a perfect sacrifice for us, one without blemish, one who is spotless. And the only perfect being is God himself, and therefore only God can offer himself to God on our behalf. And so the typology, the correlation is very clear from Leviticus 22. And so the faithful worshiper wasn't to offer the worthless animals of his flock. He was to offer his best. Also, he wasn't to try to save money or cut corners in his offerings. Verses 26 through 28, you can't offer a newborn animal, nor can you offer an animal and her young in the same day. Now, a newborn might be offered. There's there's an obvious reason for this because it wasn't old enough yet to have developed any maladies which would disqualify it and it wasn't worth anything yet. And so it was an easy way out. And so it was considered cutting corners to offer a newborn animal. And besides, a newborn animal took less work and, and less feed. And so you're offering something that costs you nothing to maintain and to keep prior to the offering. And then we get a final note concerning the worship of God's people. Verses 29 and 30 gives a general rule that any of the thank offerings were to be eaten immediately. There's more detailed rules in chapter 7. But the sacrifice was to be used for the purpose for which it's given and nothing else. Now let me, let me summarize all of that. It may feel like we're just jumping around from topic to topic. But the whole section from chapter 22:17 on basically says this. Do not shortchange God in your worship. Don't shortchange God. Don't, don't try to cut corners. Don't try to figure out to, how to worship on a technicality. D- don't say uh, things like, well, I attend an online church. Don't say things like, well, I give when I feel led. Don't worship in a way that shortchanges God. Now, we don't bring animals to sacrifice, but we do bring money. We bring service, we bring time, we bring attitudes, we bring humility, we bring honor, we bring awe, all of these things. I think that the consumer attitude of American cultural Christianity really has been fueled by church leaders, and I blame those in the pulpit, because what have they done? They've tried to create, instead of a worship service, they've tried to create a product and a production to entertain people and that's robbed us of what it actually means to gather together as the people of God. Could I refresh you in what gathering as the church means? Philippians 2.12 It means coming together to exhort one another and to work for the furtherance of the gospel quote, with fear and trembling. Ephesians 5.19 Gathering together means to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs Singing and making melody to the Lord, how? With your heart. 
Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence, phobos, fear of the Lord. We don't come to be entertained. We come to submit in reverence. Colossians 3, verse 5, we gather together, partly putting to death what is earthly in you. That there should be a sense that I leave my sin in the parking lot, so to speak. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do you do that? Well, it is the preached word. You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do you think about and listen to preaching? Just like you're doing right now. James 1.21 is a how-to-listen preaching guide. It says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's confession. That's acknowledging your sin. That's being clean before the Lord before you would dare to hear the word of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And what do you do after the preaching? Here's the New Testament equivalent to the fact that your worship is vitally connected to your life, James 1.22, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Can I give you the two basic reasons that believers fall into the category of hearers only and not doers? There's only two of them. Reason number one, quantity. They simply have enough trust in themselves that they believe they can go two, three, and four weeks without the preached word and that this will have no effect on them whatsoever. Satan loves that. He loves to separate you from the preached word. And the second reason, obviously, is quality. That they're not disciplined to be quality listeners. What is a quality listener? James tells us, James 1.19, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. What is that? That's in the context of listening to the preached word. The minute the church attender or member stops being a quality listener, he might as well stay home. Because at that point, he knows better. He has nothing to learn and no places to grow. Well, God summarizes chapters 20 through 22, chapter 22, verse 31. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. I told you at the very beginning, I would tell you the top secret but obvious tip to a vibrant Christian life, and I promised this to you earlier. Here it is. If you want to live a life rich in faith and in the power of God where you see Him working, you see the hand of God in everything you're doing, then be excellent in your worship and all that that entails and life will take care of itself. If you want to see the Lord working, if you want to have a a life of rich faith, if you want to be able to count your blessings and run out of time because there's so many to count, be excellent in worship. Obviously, the flip side to that is the warning. Be flippant about your worship about your church attendance, about listening to sermons, about reading the word, about prayer. Be flippant about those things and your life will reflect it. Eventually it will. But if you will be excellent in your worship, then a life rich in faith in the power of God will follow. It is really that simple. Or I could have saved the last 50 minutes or so and just said this. 
you will live as you worship. You will live as you worship. That is the lesson of Leviticus 20 through 22. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text. So very practical for us. So very clear. Lord, I pray for these who are here. These are, these are the faithful troopers here on the Sunday night that's windy and cold and rainy and they came to hear the word of God and I cherish them for it and I know you do as well. Lord, I pray for them. I pray for those who are not among us that they would see a clear connection between their life and their worship and that if we would pursue a life of pursuing God, then we would see your blessings follow us, Lord. We would see our attitudes about death more in line with yours, our attitudes toward our marriages and families more in line with yours, our attitudes toward being clean and pure before you more in line with yours. We would see lives that are holy. And so, Lord, I pray in our hearts that you would burn it deeply into our souls to connect our worship with our lives, that there is not sacred and secular, all is sacred before you, We are holy because you are holy. That is our calling. That is our command. Might we demonstrate the love for Christ that you have given in our hearts through our obedience. Might we be those, as the Lord Jesus said, who demonstrate their love because we obey his commands so that we might be holy as you are. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.